Welcome to the Culture of Kindness podcast. Have you wondered about the direction the world is going? Wondered if you and the rest of the world are connecting in a healthy way? I can see it in others, and now I've changed the lens through which I see the world, and to be kind is the only possible result. Because you, you don't have the language of talking, it's kind of almost a language of kindness. In this podcast, we discuss everything from what makes a brilliant leader to where is the world going on our current trajectory and how can we make a culture of kindness and do we actually need to or are we doing all right just as we are? It's roughly 2,000 years since some bloke got nailed to a tree for suggesting that we should all be a little bit nicer to each other. And I fear that over the last 2,000 years we haven't moved on very far from that. Inherently, humans are very badly flawed. And there, there is... I, Nahala Summers, became obsessed about the power of kindness after it was the kindness of a stranger that changed my life. So now I am lucky enough to talk to the most eclectic mix of people, probably on any podcast. Come inside and subscribe. It will open your mind and world up to the best examples of living life wholeheartedly. You look on the Facebook, even when you look in the comments on BBC, everyone goes, oh, I hate bullies. But then that's like saying, I hate water. You know, bullies have come from somewhere. And what was going to tap on my shoulder from somewhere that said, you cannot just do an act of kindness in a day and that be good enough. Before we go to the full episode, I just wanted to jump in and let you know that the Culture of Kindness Leadership book is available right now on Amazon. It's getting brilliant reviews because it is a practical support for any leader organisation looking to make a more successful workplace. And who doesn't love that? To find out more about what we offer, go to www.aculturaofkindness.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, folks, and supporting this podcast. And if you love it, please do share it with your networks. Robin, thank you so much for coming and being a guest on A Culture of Kindness podcast. You are so welcome. Um, You've got off on an extremely busy tour that you've been doing. Can you share just a little bit um, about your latest book and your latest work? Yeah, it's been it's been a kind of insane mix because on one side of it, I've been touring with uh, my friend, the uh, fashionable and attractive attractive uh, physicist Brian Cox so we play these kind of enormous domes where he tells people about black holes and then the other side is me doing my normal world of solo performing in kind of art centres and little theatres and and in bookshops really talking about uh, a, a book that I wrote called I'm a Joke and So Are You which was I didn't know exactly what it was going to be when I started it it was in fact I found the original notes and I don't think there's a single chapter that is the same chapter that I thought it was going to be. None, none of them had the same content. It was, it was a book that came about because uh, I was doing a show about uh, for a mental health charity on the night we found out Robin Williams died. And then I watched the way the media talked about um, why he killed himself. And I thought it was kind of very crass and mundane and kind of banal statements, which I think also were quite unhelpful looking at some of the statistics of what that might have actually, uh, you know, in terms of the effects that may well have had on 
um, people with uh, depression or with suicidal thoughts. So I wanted to, to write a book that looked at the strangeness of what it is to be human and the fact that even though comedians, which I've been for nearly 30 years now, are seen as this very strange species, I think we're, we're just almost as normal or as abnormal as most human beings, except that we talk about it, or the story is such a kind of, uh, it seems like a more flamboyant story. If you go, oh, you know that person over there, she makes people laugh, but I heard in the dressing room, she was sad. And so we're having that kind of, people see that as a much bigger story, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who's got a, a reasonably kind of tedious job, who goes home and says, oh, that's a bit rubbish, isn't it? That doesn't have enough of the contrast, the contrast of showing off for a living and trying to make people laugh. So I kind of wanted to use lots of the different anecdotes and myths and uh, the kind of the, the, the ideas, the common culturally shared ideas of comedians and use them in each chapter to explore how we become who we become and then how we try and deal with it. Mm. Do you remember where you were when you heard about Robin Williams? Because I guess he's a big part of the comedian world and, and part of yeah. comedian's lives. I, I mean, it was, there are certain people. Uh, I mean, in terms of... It's like, I remember where I was when Elvis died. I was uh, putting in some stickers with pictures of Lancaster bombers uh, after being at RAF Hendon Museum. Right, So that's what I did. Uh, I was at Art Club when John Lennon, when we found found out he died um what's that thing where to be at the edinburgh festival which is of course the, the largest i think i think it must be the largest gathering of, of, of comedians anywhere in the world i don't think there's anywhere bigger and also to be doing a show about mental health that night it was a show for the charity mind mm -hmm. and normally that show uh was just comics doing some stand-up and it might be it was called cheaper than therapy and they could do stand-up which might be about whether they've had therapy or it might be the bit of stand-up that they consider to be therapeutic stand-up or it might be stand-up about mental health but on that particular night i'd said to the promoter it seems a pity that it's just another stand-up night and i was on with a, a brilliant american comedian called eddie peppertone there's a fantastic movie about him called the bitter buddha he's, he's a wonderful comedian to watch and very much a comedian's comedian as well as he has he, the way that he funnels his rage uh you know this wonderful impotent rage against the world and i thought well between eddie and me we've been going for years and years and years why don't we also have a conversation afterwards if any of the audience want to hang around we'll record a little conversation and then the interval came and everyone was happy and then they turned on their phones and then everything suddenly this gloom, this bar, a place called the Greyfriars Kirk House, where it was, there's an incredible gloom. And, and I didn't have a phone with me and I asked someone what was going on and they said, oh, do you not know Robin Williams has, has died? And mm. we still went back and did it. And Eddie had actually known him. He, he said, you know, he, he knew, knew Robin. He, he said, I wasn't friends with him, but we were friendly. And um, everyone had a very different reaction to it some people were so shocked they just went went out straight away left left the the bar uh some people hung around i think a lot of people did want to talk about it because for certainly i would say my generation of comedians and and in fact because he then went into kids movies a bit like rick mail he had that thing because rick mail has has three different there's those of us who found out of him kevin turvey and the young ones there's those who then found from bottom and there's those who were huge fans as kids of drop dead fred so when rick mail died i thought oh it's just kind of middle-aged people and oh no it wasn't it was and the same way with robin williams for some people it was good morning vietnam for some people it was more Mindy. for some people it was jumanji and all of those things um, so yeah, and it was a 
a very Rick Mayo having only died two months before him, Rick Mayo, I think, was probably the most important comedian in my development. First mm. saw him at the age of eleven. Uh, I was like, oh, this is amazing. You can do this. This oh look, and, and I just adored him. And then Robin Williams was, would have been through Mork and Mindy. And then when I was about 14, 15, I started to find out there were recordings of him. And of course, then there weren't really, you couldn't get a video of him. There were videos. In fact, I don't know any videos available in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so I'd just listen to these vinyl recordings of him. And I became obsessed with him because mm-hmm. he had such a legend about him. He'd just turn up late night at clubs and then he'd just kind of do an hour of stand-up off the top of his head. And, um, and so he became very, very important as well. So, so it was two very... Uh, major influences on me dying so quickly. Mm. I mean, I, I know, I know where I was when you know when Rick Mail died. I was, I just watched someone doing uh, Jeremy Dyson, brilliant writer, uh, the the writer of the League of Gentlemen, as in the other three perform it as well. Jeremy's the fourth one, and uh, I'd just been he'd been showing me a show that he'd made, which was all about a psychotherapist dealing with uh, eccentric women throughout history people mm. like Catherine the Great. And he'd showed me the footage of Margaret Thatcher, who was played as if she was uh, from Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter. She's wheeled in with a hockey mask. <laughs> I just watched that with my friend Michael, who's another huge fan of Rick Mail. And I went to the loo and I walked out and I can still see Michael standing there on two steps above me. And he went, oh, mate, oh, mate. Rick Mayles died, you know, and it was like, oh, just, and, and we went around Leeds, we were in Leeds, and we went around shouting out various different catchphrases, and that night when we did our show together, I sometimes do a double act with Michael, it was particularly manic, and insane, and sweary, and even stupider than we normally were. <laughs> That's a very long arm. Brilliant. Do you think, you know, comedy... It's probably the old podcast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think, really. Do you think um, comedy, you know, you and I've heard you talk about this on the stage as well, about comedy and kindness and the way that comedy can sometimes be unkind to because comedians are trying to get a laugh out of that. What's your thoughts about that? Well, that's the, the fastest route to a gag in one way. And I mean that in ways if we're just with friends and stuff like that is to take the piss out of someone else, mm. is to have a victory over someone else, to mock them. So, so for instance, very often in some of the kind of tougher uh, chain comedy clubs, when a comedian goes on, the first thing they do is they look at the front row and they look for the person who might be a bit fatter than someone else or someone who's wearing a slightly stupider shirt or a couple where, you know, all of those things. Mm. And I always feel that, that to, to me that sets off on the wrong foot anyway, because it's a sign of weakness. It shows that you're scared. So what you're doing is immediately out of fear, we mock other people. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a, you know, it's a major part of, of the way that we have a sense of humor is to ridicule other people. Mm-hmm. And of course that also grows, you know, and, and, it's, and it can be brilliant. Ridicule is fantastic. You know, Adam, and, as we know, ridicule is nothing to be scared of. Thank you, Adam. You are a dandy highwayman. But uh, I do think it's a really, um, it, it can be used so well when you see people of power ridiculed. You know, there's there's nothing more joyous than seeing someone powerful who has just been tremendously arrogant walking on the pavement and slipping in dog excrement. Right, <laughs> that, that moment, that moment of the fall from power to the humanity. Now he's in fact Rick Mail does it brilliantly in a, in a film called More Bad News, where he's just there with with dog excrement on his shoe. Bloody hell! Bloody hell! Bloody hell! And um, 
And so then I think ridicule is a really, but I think a lot of ridicule that we see is attacking people who are already weaker in society and in culture. And that's the thing where, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge, I try as much each year. I think with each show, I try and find more ways of doing a show which is not really about making... I, I love dealing with humility, mm. but I don't like the idea of... I, I think a lot about the audience, and I think about what might hurt them. Mm. And it's certainly the kind of audience that I have, uh, the people who do come. I want them to leave feeling happier and leave possibly sometimes as well feeling that they are not the only one and they're, they're less alone in the world. And that might sound very, you know, kind of crass or I don't know, but it's, it's, I do. And, um, and I like the conversation I have with people afterwards. I like the idea that you haven't created a, a division by the end of the evening. Mm. You've actually created various different evening. And I think that, that to me is kind of, uh, that's one way that comedy can, can be done. You know, my, my friend Josie Long is tremendously um, good at that. And uh, when you see the kind of, you know, the, what, what, what Hannah Gadsby certainly did with Nanette, which is a, a very, you know, very disturbing piece of work as well. But it is a piece of work which is tremendously important for people when they leave that room feeling perhaps less alone than mm. when they went in. And, um, I, and I think now we have this kind of, st sorry, I'll let you ask a question. No, no, I was going to say to explain a little bit more about that piece of work that um, you just spoke about. Nanette. Yeah, Nanette. Hannah, Hannah's show, which then is one, it was meant to be the, the swan song. It was her resignation from stand-up, but then became so hugely successful that she has no option now but to continue creating great work. Um, she kind of now says it, perhaps it never really was a resignation, but it, it was the most personal work she'd ever done. Mm. And she talked, she was dealing a lot with the idea that she finds stand-up disturbing because jokes are about removing the tension to an extent. But at the same time, the comedian is removing the tension by also building up tension. So mm. they both created the tension and then they've destroyed it and sometimes the way that's used I think she felt that that was um disconcerting for her she didn't like that and and what she then does in that show is as she talks about things that have happened in her life and she talks about how she turned them into jokes mm. and very often when they were turned into jokes they removed the real events mm. and so she talked about for instance well, well well a time that she was beaten up mm. And she basically gives us the version that she used in stand-up. But then she gave us the real version, yeah. which doesn't have a funny punchline. No. You know, it has hospitalization and it has a lot of other things, things going on there. So it was a very interesting kind of piece of work as well. And, and it, because it was hugely successful as well, then, then some comics started going, well, it's not even comedy, is it? Because there aren't enough laughs and stuff. And of course, that, even that, that, I think, comedy can be whatever, you know, if the audience have come out and they've got something from it and they weren't bored and they were excited, it can be a really broad thing. It can be someone doing a wonderful selection of one-liners where you get, you know, 15 laughs every 30 seconds. Or... It may be a long piece where there aren't as many, you know, so I, I think it was a very interesting exploration again of what, and I certainly know the, the way it affected people. A lot of it kind of deals with misogyny as well. Uh, and I think it had the people that I, I saw it in a very small room when she, at the very first night, I think she was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and I could see people left not being able to immediately have a conversation, not immediately going, oh, let's go straight to Pizza Express. You leave going, oh, well, that, 
has I don't know if that's changed me or not, but it stopped me in my tracks. And I think that's a beautiful thing about art. I think art. You know, this is why I love doing things with science, whether it's art, beautiful pieces of art, beautiful ideas of science are very often things that change the way the night sky looks, that change the way that your life is, change the way that you see your own reflection. Mm. And, th and there's something very powerful about that, that piece of work, and also the conversation that we really had earlier about the truth behind comedy, there also being another side to it. It's not all laughs, and it's the same for life. Um, and having being able to accept people for who they are and allow that vulnerability of people because you know in that in itself it's just kindness to have acceptance of people really I think for comedy you know there's so much of it you just go oh well you're just happy and everything's okay and we make those assumptions I guess rather than looking at the bigger picture and seeing that there is two sides yeah I think that's a I, I think we, we live in a culture where and it's probably always been true, but I think it's very, it's now conveyed with incredible speed because of the speed of social media, because it's such a kind of fast thinking brain part of, of, of the world, which is the idea that someone is a multitude is, is problematic. You want to see people, you, you, we want them to be heroes or villains. We want, uh, and I think what, what, again, great art can do, and sometimes even quite mediocre art as you can do, which is just show you, people are lots, so many different things. Mm. and the idea that someone to, uh, Max Wall great great comedian and clown Max Wall he, he once said what a ridiculous thing it is to ask if someone in an interview asked him are you happy he said well I might be now and 30 seconds later I might suddenly hit a trough of, of depression mm. and you know two days later I might kind of be content that's the thing is you know the idea of of a through line which just says and I have ended up happy I am happy it's changing all the time and we're changing all the time and we're different people to different, you know, all of those things. And I, th I think that's what I, I particularly engaged me in is, is when, especially with what comedy I think can do. I was talking about it on Sunday at an event at British Library, which was there's comedy used to a lot of comedians, post-war comedians. I think we're dealing with lots of different issues. Some of them, it was uh, the mental health implications of being fighting in a war. Some of them, quite a few of them, it was sexuality. The sexuality they had was actually legal. They were not officially allowed to, to, to exist. So when they would go on stage, they would be someone different. They would be presenting the happy-go-lucky, the weird, the strange, whatever it was, the surreal. And then they would go off stage and they would become the other version of themselves, which mm -hmm. they might think is the realer version of themselves. Whereas now you have lots of comedians who go on stage and actually for that 40 minutes, that hour, that two hours, they are telling stories that they would not be able to tell anyone else. They wouldn't tell people in a social situation, but somehow with an audience, they will reveal personal stories that they may well have kept hidden mm. from everyone else. So it's kind of cheap it was before. It becomes a period of time of incredible emotional honesty before then going into the persona of what we are for the rest of our life. And when I think that happens, the useful thing that is for human beings is... All of us, I think one of the biggest problems for being human is 
we have different versions of ourselves whereas a dog most animals that they don't have a, a dog doesn't after kind of think oh you know why did i do that and oh, that's not me the thing that ran after the stick i didn't even want you know, they don't think about that whereas we will do something we'll, we'll, and, and then you think i know that it's not there's separate stories going on in our head all the time there are separate conversations going on there's not just one through line conversation mm-hmm. and so that thing of being both an outside self and an inner self it's that great line which uh, philippa perry when i was talking to her once when she just said the problem with being human is we judge everyone else from their exterior and ourselves from our interior so of course there's immediately a disparity of course both you and I are imposters because we're hearing our internal monologue about our failures that we're trying to cover up and the trying things are, and everyone else we are watching deliver their exterior self and in comedy you can actually go well tell you what here's what I was thinking and audience go oh Oh God, I really thought I was the only one. And I've had that quite often. I've had people come up to me and go, I, I cannot believe. I, I've been thinking about this for my whole life and I always thought I'm the weird one. This is a story I must never tell. Because also we're so concerned with our social standing yes. that to show weakness, you know, as, as, as we all know, and as it kind of, you know, ultimately can be an incredible strength to say, do you know what, I've been having this and someone else goes, so have I and so have I. Grayson Perry, there's a lovely, in his book, Descent of Man, there's a great couple of cartoons, which is the five men being their exterior men. Mm. And then you see the five men's thought bubbles, all of the things, all of the terror that they're experiencing when they're all together, just being blokes. But they're not all really just being blokes, not in their heads. No, no. And there's something beautiful about, as you were talking there, I was just thinking, you know, it's about the kindness to self, like us just being accepting of ourselves and each other. I think there's so much judgment that we put on others, but also actually within ourselves and the own story and and hence the mental health challenges that people have um, more so than others, really. So um i i can't quite believe that we've already come to the end of the um podcast um but which is unbelievable but i just i I talk i'm I'm terrible i've done events at book festivals someone went but i only did two questions i'm really (laughs) sorry i'm overly (laughs) verbose the good thing is of course the moment this stops i'll I'll, i will be thinking about uh you know my interior self will be tearing all of this apart and thinking oh my god why do you say that and oh no, well, I I heard you. I am going to ask one more question, but uh, I heard you at Ways with Words and um, your stories and the way that you spoke. And, you know, you continually rolled into insightful, insightful stories, new things, not led by somebody else, but led by your own thoughts. And that made the talk incredibly fascinating, not not mm-hmm. being led by somebody. So you know, don't let that internal uh, thought bubble eat away on that for sure, Robin, because, you know, that's why I want to ask you here today. And I'm honoured that you've taken the time. Um, So the last question for me is, you know, my work and my belief is that we need to start looking at changing our culture to a culture of kindness. How and where do you think that starts from? It has to start from every individual, doesn't it? It has to. I do think it's a huge problem that we have a society which so much seems to be driven by by envy and and, and spite. You know, we, we watch a lot of that all the time where because we're scared that someone else might have the advantage we decide to rip off other people in so many different ways, whether actually, you know, whether financially or emotionally or whatever it might be. And I think we're also so scared of a sign of... It, it, why is it people have far greater fear 
expressing love than expressing hate. Critics love writing uh, a piece that tears apart a bit of work. Really great critics have an incredible vocabulary for also explaining why they adored something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's we have to get over this idea that it's a weakness to turn to someone and say that you love their work or you love them or you know, all of that to, to share that bit because so often we have there's a there's a film called Waking Ned I don't know if you've ever seen it no. and um it's about it's about the, the basic plot is it's about uh someone in this small Irish town has won the lottery but they've died and so the rest of the town have to pretend because they want to get this it's the huge lottery win so they have to cover up the fact this person's died and there's two guys in it Ian Bannon one flat to Ian Bannon and David Kelly and one of them has to pretend that the other is dead and deliver a eulogy at their funeral. And of course, the eulogy they deliver while that person is actually sat there is the genuine feelings that they have for their friend. And it's a very beautiful scene, that bit where, and of course, that's the, 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 the thing that we have to try and avoid. Of thing going, oh, I never said, why didn't I do that? And I think that's, it, it's very easy to live a life I think of almost perpetual regret because we didn't take action because we were scared that it would make us ashamed Mm. what brilliant way to end the podcast Robin thank you so much for your time I know how incredibly busy you are and I know it's it's going to be a great episode that loads of people are going to tune into oh thanks very much for having me on as well I hope I'll bump into another festival soon yes yes absolutely I'm sure we will where, where are you where are you going 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 this year do you know yeah well i'm going i'm certainly going ways with words um to both of those so i'm up there in march um middle of march sometime in keswick and yeah keswick. just waiting for a few others going to have you seen the film sightseers no quite a macabre film that alice lowe made it's brilliant it's about two people going around uh weird tourist attractions in the uk and murdering people but it includes a visit to the Pencil Museum in Keswick. So it will give you a different vision of Keswick, as well as that, you know, that beautiful little theatre on the water and all of that kind of thing. Pop into the Pencil Museum and see another part of the world. (laughs) Well, I'm going to watch that movie after I've been to Keswick, only because I won't want to go into the Pencil Museum, I imagine, after what, before watching it. No, that's true. I mean, we've survived this one so far, haven't we? This horror movie scenario. So it's great. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks so much, Robin. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Whether you're a CEO or department manager, you can build a more productive, profitable and engaged workforce through adopting the theory laid out in my latest book available on Amazon, aptly also named A Culture of Kindness. It will guide you on how to be the type of leader that every employee remembers for all the right reasons. You can also subscribe to the monthly newsletter at www.nahalasummers.com to hear more about the latest talks, courses and upcoming podcast episodes. Thank you.